Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Okay, reading from 2 Timothy 3:10 to 17. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, and persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And of course, the obvious thing here is that Timothy has been raised by his mother, who was Jewish. He grew up with the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament. And Paul is saying to Timothy that what you know through these sacred writings, they will give you wisdom to salvation. But then, of course, the key phrase, through faith in Christ Jesus. So the essential thing he needs to live out the Christian life. Paul is depicting himself, that's the up from verse 10, as a model for Timothy to follow. He spells out Christian practice. You know, look at me as I look at Christ, as Paul says elsewhere. And you can expect that if you desire to live in Christ, then what happened to Paul may happen to you. That those who are against you will persecute you, and those who do the persecuting, they will be evil imposters. Maybe they'll be Christians, so-called. Maybe they'll be good Jews. What will be made clear in their life is their fruit, you know, living by a deception. And so Paul, by way of contrast, tells Timothy, Continue on what you learned from your mother and from your grandmother. What you know from childhood, but of course he's telling him, put that together with knowing Christ. The Old Testament provides for a wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ. What's the Old Testament about? Well, it's about Jesus. We now understand. And this combination, first of all, the model of the apostle, the training in the Hebrew scriptures, and then the knowledge of salvation in Christ, I think that provides the basis for Paul's final statement. 
On this basis, the inspiration of Scripture is realized. It becomes a basis for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. The point is that we can miss the center of the Bible. We can misread Scripture. And that's the problem with many people, both Christians and Jews, is they're going to read the Scripture and miss Christ. So Christ as the center of what Paul models as the center of the walk of the Christian life. Here is our true model. As the center of the Hebrew scriptures becomes the one we encounter in the scripture, enabling knowledge of salvation. How do you know Jesus? How do you know who Christ is? Well, through all of these things put together, we encounter Christ. The scriptures are inspired, but what brings out their fullness is reading them through the lens of Christ with the model of the apostle and the church. You know, that's true for us still, right? In short, there is a spiritual inspired reading, but we can also read the scriptures without the spirit. And unfortunately, this inspired reading of the Bible and understanding of salvation, I'm afraid we've obscured it, or it can be obscured, by our own rationalism, or maybe a, a literalism, a kind of law-based reading, we might say, a historicist reading, in which rationalism or historicism or literalism makes the mysteries of the faith something, you know, to be studied more than something to be believed and experienced. Rationalism translates into historicism, and history becomes very often the prime concern and understanding Christ. I mentioned, you know, we were mainly concerned with harmonizing the Gospels. I don't think that's the reason we read the Gospels. We read the Gospels to understand who Jesus is. And rather than finding Christ, very often, historicism cuts out the study or cuts out the, the spiritual meaning of Scripture. And this, well, actually, there's a name for this. And this is the predominant word. This is what if you go to any of our schools, what you will study is called the historical critical method of studying the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but if you stop there, then you've got this inadequate, sanitized theology that uh, it lacks connection to really what is the traditional way of reading scripture that Paul is describing. It's an exegesis that unveils the meaning of the Bible by its intended author, who is God. And so the fathers and the apostles of the church, they did not simply pay attention to the historical context of the writing. I'm not saying that's unimportant, but if we just stop there, we've missed it. They did not read scripture simply, oh, well, here is this part and it's leading up to Jesus. As we've seen, no, that the Old Testament is not simply leading up to Jesus. It's about Jesus. He's there. It's speaking about Christ. It's speaking about his passion. All that we find in the New Testament, Paul and the other writers of the New Testament are saying, we found this in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, through Christ. It's all about Christ. 
And so this integrated understanding of the Bible, the whole Bible as being about Christ, I think it's kind of fallen apart, and we, we may miss Christ. Look at Paul's early formula proclaiming the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, he says that Christ was crucified and raised. 1 Corinthians 15. According to the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament. That's the only scripture they have. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Oh, where does it say that? Well, he tells us where it says that. It's there in Isaiah. It's there in the Psalms. The gospel, which Paul delivered, this is his language, the word here could be traditioned to us, is from the first according to the scriptures. And of course, the scriptures here are not our four gospels. I'm afraid that's what we're thinking. But it's the law, it's the Psalms, it's the prophets. And so when the New Testament refers to the scriptures, they're referring to the, the Hebrew Bible, and gospel is not located in a specific text. And what came to be recognized as canonical gospels are always described as, you know, it's the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to John. The whole thing is the gospel. The gospel is not a fixed particular text, but it's an interpretive relationship to the scriptures, to the law, to the Psalms, to the prophets. A relationship formed through Christ. So before the formation of the New Testament, there was the presumption that there was a correct reading and that the canon of scripture would cohere and fit together on the basis of this reading. And that is that there is one Jesus Christ. You know, this is John 1.18. The only Son of the Father who alone made known. And the word here is actually exegeted. Who exegetes the scriptures for us? Well, Jesus does. The New Testament is an exegesis of the Hebrew scriptures through Christ. And I'm saying this because this is the way we need to read all of the Bible. Even the New Testament is not going to cohere or make sense apart from this exegetical frame. We might refer to this, and this is the way that Paul will refer to it, Origen will refer to it, of one of the early church fathers, as a spiritual reading of the Bible. Paul will talk about, you know, the, there were two women, Hagar and Sarai. And these are an allegory, a spiritual reading, he says. And this is opposed to merely a historical or a literal reading. Origen, an early church father, he refers to this literal, you know, the insistence on only the literal, only the historical reading. He says, this is the faith of the simple ones. He says that's better than the faith of the heretics. It's better than an origin, you know, talks about the literalism of the Jews. These simple ones believe in the creator God. He says that's good. But they read scripture without the spirit. Not are left simply with the literal text, the letter devoid of the spirit. Remember Paul saying, the letter kills. I think we can read the Bible in a kind of deadly way. 
But the Spirit gives life. And so Origen commends, he says, well, you've got this high view of the Creator, but unfortunately you believe things about God, he says, quote, that would not be believed of the most savage and unjust of men. Because you're reading the Bible without Christ, without the Spirit, and therefore you assign to God evil things. The reason for this, the reason for the false teaching of the heretics, he actually combines all of these things, the literalism of the Jews, he says it can be assigned to a singular cause. Holy Scripture is not understood by them, by these simple ones, according to its spiritual sense, but according to the sound of the letter. Those that miss the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Word, the Spirit of History, have given, and I'm quoting here, they have given themselves up to fictions, mythologizing for themselves hypotheses, according to which they suppose that there are some things that are seen, and certain others which are not seen, but these have been idolized. The simple ones reduce God to being after their own likeness. They're just projecting onto God their own understanding. And what they miss is this sacramental, the idea that God is mediated to us through the Word, delivered through the Son by the Spirit. Now I'm going to say why. What happened? And maybe it's not important to say how or why this happened, why we read the Bible the way we do. But in saying this is what happened, I'm also saying, okay, this is, part, this is partly our problem. We have an early church father, Anselm of Canterbury. You know, he comes along after the Constantinian shift and things have changed up in the empire. He's a key apologist for the church. And he gives us a new doctrine of atonement and actually a new way of arguing for God. It's purely on the basis of reason. He takes Plato and he says we can get to God on the basis of Plato. And he poses a world in which the resources for understanding God lie within human reason, human interiority, more than on a community of faith. Maybe it's Thomas Aquinas. Some say that it's Aquinas' fault. You know, with Anselm even, or Augustine, we have the idea, I believe, in order to understand. But Thomas Aquinas comes along and says, well, no, wait a minute. There's two kinds of knowledge. There is the knowledge according to faith, and that's one sort of knowledge. But then there is the knowledge according to reason. And these two things many see as falling apart with Thomas Aquinas. And so he says, well, certain knowledge is one thing, and faith is something else, and you can't be certain about faith. I don't know if you know who John Locke is, but actually the founder of the Christian church, Alexander Campbell, was a great admirer of John Locke. He says that belief is a persuasion which falls short of knowledge. Knowledge is better than faith. And so we lose this idea of believing in order to understand. Instead, faith is what we have to fall back on when knowledge is not to be had. Some would lay the, the blame on another, this is an obscure figure you may have never heard of, Duns Scotus. But there's a whole school in Catholicism 
that actually out of that school arises Protestantism. And what we call nominalism, there's a whole series of things that people believe. But what Duns Scotus says is that there is a univocity of being. That is, the being of God and the being of the world are together. And we can get to the being of the God on the basis of the being of the world. And many feel that he, in fact, displaces God as transcendent. The world displaced Christ and God became indistinguishable. Now, nearly everybody blames Rene Descartes. You've heard me mention, you know, Descartes is the thinker. Actually, Protestantism and Catholicism arise and there is a crisis of authority. There's a crisis of authority, you know, is the Pope the authority? Is the Church the authority? Is Luther the authority? Or is science the authority? And actually, that's the key thing. Rene Descartes is a contemporary of Galileo. And Galileo, you know, is talking about a different ordering of the universe, that uh, the earth is not the center, but the sun is. And Descartes believes that also. In fact, Descartes was going to publish his own book on the rotation of the planets. And then he saw what they did to Galileo, and he thought, I think I'll wait on my, my book. But he comes up with a system. Instead of faith, he says doubt is the key. We have to doubt everything. I can doubt my own existence. But the one thing I cannot doubt is that I'm doubting. I think, if I'm doubting, and if I think I exist, and from there he argues to God. But the, the key thing is that he thinks like, very much similar to Anselm, but even more aggravated, that what's happening in his mind is real. And what is happening with his body is not real. Or it's extended, it's unsure. He says, I can be sure about what's in my mind, but I can't be sure about everything else. And so thought and action, belief and practice, the realm of the mind and the world of social relations, they're divided. Maybe a simple way of saying this, the soul, the mind, displaces Christ. Now I know all of you have heard of Isaac Newton. Newton wanted to correct Rene Descartes, and he wants to put God back in science. But where he puts God, he says, well, you know, when God created the world, he inserted the world into time and space. And these laws already existed. And so he allows for God, but he says, well, God, you know, we don't quite understand the rotation of all the planets, but God adjusts them. And so he allows for God in the gaps. You've probably heard the story about Simon Pierre Laplace, who thinks that he's actually closed the gaps of Newton and Napoleon, who got his book, and he, you know, Napoleon sees this huge book by Laplace and says, you know, you've written this huge book, and I've looked through it, and I don't find God anywhere in your science. And Laplace answered Napoleon, sire, I no longer have need of that hypothesis. That is, he thought that he had closed the gap. Maybe it doesn't matter, you know, whose fault is it? Where will we put the blame? But the idea is that we have a concept of God that has been impacted by this history. And one understanding of God, you know, there's kind of two understandings. There's the God that we talk about in philosophy, in apologetics. And then there's the God of the Bible in 
the narrative of the Bible. And the God found in the narrative of Scripture does not have the same sort of certainty as the God of science or the God of reason. And thus the God of reason and certainty has come to be definitive. Now you're saying, well, what has that got to do with preaching and Bible college? Because that's what students will study when they go to study Scripture. The concept of God that is being presented is precisely influenced or shaped by this understanding I'm describing. When I started seminary, one of the first classes, you know, we got up and started, we go through the apologetic arguments. Why can you believe that God exists? Well, there's the ontological argument. There is the argument from, you know, creation. There's all these arguments. And now that we believe God exists, now we can go to the Bible. I think that we got the wrong God, the God of the philosophers, and we've tried to put that God together with the God of the Bible. And so natural theology, metaphysics, the notion of some efficient cause that trumps the picture of God that we have in Christ. I believe that we understand who God is through Scripture, through Christ. And that's not secondary, that's primary. That the redemptive work in Christ should not be rendered secondary to the brute fact of God's existence. I think we come to God's existence even on the basis of Christ. And so this has resulted in the emphasis that we have on, you know, instead of a focus on the Trinity, the focus on God's love, we have all kinds of discussion about God's sovereignty, God's immovability. You know, that was Aristotle, that God is described as the unmoved mover. That's become a prime concern, immutability, impassibility. And there is the picture of the world as a kind of limited whole, that rather than seeing the world and creation and scripture as giving forth the grandeur of God, it's made a kind of problem. You know, Newton's mechanical philosophy, really there's no room for God. And we get deism and atheism. We get a kind of focus on evolutionary biology or reductionism. And we imagine that that challenges God. And I think it's a misunderstanding. And so in biblical studies, the primary effort becomes, well, we need to protect the Bible. We need to ward off scientific attacks. We need to ward off higher critical understanding. And so we defend the inerrancy of the Bible. We show how the Bible can be harmonized, the Old Testament with the New Testament, or the harmony of the Gospels, or the harmony with the doc within the doctrine of the Bible. That becomes of prime importance. And the Bible, not Jesus, becomes the center. Or history, and not Christ, becomes the center. History or reason becomes the presumed ground rather than Christ. Christ is our truth claim. Propositions about Christ don't replace Christ, but unfortunately, they've tended to. Historicism displaces the word of Christ. There is a, a continuum. Certainly we have Christ revealed in history, that God has come to us in Christ. But this spirit of history is reduced kind of to the history of the spirit. This is literally the picture that now God is reduced to history itself. 
And so the general tenor of theology, of biblical studies, like that of culture, doubt replaces certainty. Doubt displaces trust. Certainty is sought to avoid any risk. And facts, you know, maybe we should put that in quotes, are preferred over story or narrative. And so in the words of Paul, the spirit is displaced by the letter. The letter becomes primary. I'm going to close here that Paul pictures two interpretive methods. This is in Galatians chapter 4. The way that Paul pictures these two interpretive methods, he calls one that of the Jews and one of Christians. We might say the literal and spiritual. He notes that Abraham's son was born by a a slave woman. One was born by a slave woman. He says, and this was according to the flesh. While the second was born according to the free woman and was the result of divine promise. And Paul says this metaphorically or allegorically is actually the word he uses illustrates two different ways of perceiving God. We can perceive God through the lens of the literal, the historical, the slave woman. He says this is represented by the covenant from Sinai that brings forth children who are slaves, enslaved by the letter. For they strive to be rightly related to God without the Spirit. You have the Old Testament without Christ. Where does that leave you? Enslaved. You have history without Christ. Where does that leave you? Enslaved. Or you can take anything. You know, scientism without the understanding of a creator may leave you enslaved. That is that Christ is the one who makes it cohere. And this is what Paul says. He says, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. So Paul is describing the two covenants, demonstrating the spiritual or allegorical reading. That is, in this very reading, he's showing us how to read. Sarah and Hagar illustrate something beyond their own history. He's not saying that history is not true. He's just saying the main thing is not that history. We need to read it spiritually. And this spiritual, or what Paul calls an allegorical reading, is this, we could call it a spiritual reading. He says Sarah, in 28 to 29, by contrast, represented the new covenant that brings forth the children of promise who are born of the Spirit. The power of the flesh is intermixed with a trust in the law. We might say the law reduces in Paul's argument to the same thing, you know, to the flesh, the law, literalism, historicism. That is a non-spiritual reading. That will leave you enslaved. The difference for Abraham between the power of the flesh and the power of the promise pertains primarily, this is 21 to 31, what's the difference? The true object of the faith of Abraham is Christ. So we can read the Bible in a fleshly manner, in a literal manner, in a historicist manner, giving precedent not to Christ, but to the flesh. Or we can read the Bible as inspired 
through Christ, profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for salvation. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.